All right, everybody, good morning. All right, everybody, welcome. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're new to Remnant, welcome. I, I hope you define this to be a place where you can take your next step towards God, whatever that step may be. Uh, you may be here trying to discover if there is a God. You may be here trying to figure out where you got off track. Or you may be here just ready to celebrate what God's doing in your life. And we all come here every week to do that. We've been in a series about the end of times. And I don't know, I think we're in about week six now. And we've talked about all kinds of things. About how the world is being groomed for the arrival of the Antichrist. How the dashboard of end times is lighting up with flashing lights showing us that the end is near and we've talked about the covenants of God, we've talked about God's character and his nature and how his promises are secure and we're gonna to continue to look into God's word to see what God had to say about the end of times. And today we're gonna to look specifically at what Jesus had to say about the end of times. But first I wanna take, well, take you back to a moment East of Jerusalem on a mountain, uh, a mountain that we now call the Mount of Olives. The time is about three or four days before Jesus' crucifixion. The event, Jesus took a select group of his disciples and told them a sermon. A sermon about what was to come. And we're going to look at that today. Uh, the sermon is going to be about the destruction of the temple and about the end of times. But before we go back, before we talk about what Jesus said that day, I want to go back 450 years to the same location, Jerusalem, during the time of the prophet Ezekiel. One day God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel. He, he went to Jerusalem, he sent Ezekiel there, and he repeated a promise that was very familiar to us that we've talked about. Ezekiel went to Jerusalem to remind them of the new unilateral eternal covenant that God had promised that would be sealed in Jesus' blood. So Ezekiel is going to Jerusalem. Jesus will not arrive for another almost 500 years. Look at what Ezekiel wrote. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. God talking about how he's going to take over the pagan land. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I'll remove the heart of stone of their flesh and I'll give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they'll be my people and I'll be their God. Sounds great, right? God's new promise. God repeated his promise to the, to the Jewish people. But with that promise came a warning. But for those whose hearts go after the detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. God made a covenant that he would fulfill, but only for those who wanted the promise. You see, it's a unilateral covenant. I'm going to give you a new way of salvation. It's going to come through the blood of Jesus, but I can't force it on you. You have to want it. Those who rejected him are free to reject him, but not without consequence. Notice what happens after God delivers this warning. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is east of the city. Spirit of God 
left Jerusalem and goes to the mountain east of the city, the mountain we know as the Mount of Olives. Symbolism here is relatively clear. If the Jewish people don't follow the Lord, for many of them, not all because some have embraced the covenant, the Spirit of God will leave Jerusalem. And note that the Spirit stood on the Mount of Olives. This very issue is in Jesus' mind before his crucifixion. He's about to go to the cross to make a payment for the propitiation, the, the full payment of the sins of the new covenant. The very covenant that God has been promised, Jesus is about to pay the price for. It's his blood that will seal the deal. But at the end of his three years on earth, many were still rejecting him. He comes to Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus tells him, look, you have violated the promise that God gave through Ezekiel at this very place. He'll fulfill this promise in the future, but for you, you've rejected him. You're sending him to the cross. The symbol of God's presence among his people is the temple in Jerusalem. God lived in the Holy of Holies. And in order to understand what's happening here, we need to remind ourselves of what the temple meant to the Jewish people. Jesus is in essence that God has forsaken the temple. They've desecrated it. They've abandoned it to judgment. The temple, the first temple built by Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. We've talked about that before, where, where God gave them over to the Babylonians as part of their judgment. The Babylonians came in and wiped out the temple and wiped out Jerusalem and tore down all the walls and sent a lot of people over to Babylon. And then as God had, had, had promised, he brought them back. They rebuilt the walls. And they started to rebuild the temple. And the temple took a long time to rebuild, but... Some form of it was rebuilt during the time of Haggai and Zechariah in about 516 B.C. Twenty years before the birth of Jesus, I know I'm bouncing around here, but 20 years before the birth of Jesus, this second temple was completely redone. Herod the Great spent millions, billions, trillions of dollars began the work around 20 BC. They weren't completed during the lifetime of Jesus. While Jesus was on earth, the temple was being restored. Don't miss the symbolism. Not yet complete. Being rebuilt. Not only a new temple, but a new covenant. A covenant that would not actually need the temple. The work wasn't finished till 64 AD. 80 years they worked on this thing. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that for eight years they kept 10,000 men at work about it day and night. 
And it was magnificent in stateliness. It, it exceeded that of Solomon's temple in the past. The temple was the center of Jewish life for a thousand years. People swore by the temple. It was as if swearing by God and speaking against the temple was considered blasphemy. Matthew 23:16, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by the oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? It was common to swear by the temple, to, to see the temple as the very presence of God. But the second temple wasn't just big, it was beautiful. The Jewish historian Josephus said the temple was covered with gold plates. And when the sun shone on them, it was blinding to look at. It looked as though the presence of God was actually facing you. Where there was no gold, there were blocks of marble that were so white, a pure white, that distant strangers thought that there was snow on the temple ground. The discussion, Jesus had been brokenhearted about the Jewish people rejecting him. He just finished praying for them. Many would reject him and reject the new covenant. He stays away from the cross. He's entered Jerusalem. He's lamented on his entry into Jerusalem that they're rejecting him. And on this day, while in Jerusalem, he's going to have a discussion with four of his disciples. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple... Remember when we spoke about paying attention to every word in the Bible? This verse starts with a location relocation. Important to note in Scripture. Jesus is walking away from the temple. The Jews have rejected him. He's walking away from the temple. It's not just a statement. It's symbolic of what's happening spiritually. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. He's going to contend no longer with religious leaders. He's never again going to enter the temple during his earthly ministry. He's walking away. He's walking away, and the, the Greek word there tells us it's someone who doesn't plan to return. He's leaving the temple. I suspect that the disciples noted that Jesus was very distraught. I think they're trying to cheer him up. That's just speculation. It's not unfounded, though. I mean, the emotions of Jesus in this moment are real. No doubt the disciples, like all Jewish people, were very impressed with the temple. They were proud of this man-made structure that they built to honor God. In fact, the disciples were essentially saying, look at how much the Jewish people love you, Jesus. Look at the structure they've built. Look how impressive the building is. They built this temple, this incredible structure to honor God. It means everything to them. It's the most spectacular things humans have ever built. But Jesus knows. The covenant was not accepted by many, most. No matter how incredible the building is, without the presence of God, it's nothing. 
An incredible temple built by man for a God that they've walked away from. The world today is full of man's monuments to a God they no longer follow and have rejected. So Jesus walks away from the temple. The presence of God left the temple of God and headed just like in the day of Ezekiel to the mountain east of Jerusalem. God was headed to the Mount of Olives, a place where Jesus would later depart and as we talked last week, return again. They had violated the covenant as God had promised in the day of Ezekiel was now being fulfilled in the presence of Jesus. When he walked away from the temple for the last time in his earthly ministry, he was symbolically affirming the promise that God made through Ezekiel. If you reject the new covenant in Jesus' blood, this promise is not for you. You'll not receive a new heart. You will not, he will not be your God and you will not be his child. Matthew 24. He left the temple. He's going away. The disciples point out the buildings to him. But he answers them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one left, one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Imagine the disciples in this moment. Leaving the temple, walking through the Kidron Valley, this valley that goes right outside the gates, going up the hill towards the Mount of Olives. They must have been wondering, how could this be? The temple destroyed, demolished? To understand the bewilderment, you need to remember, remember what it really meant, that temple, to the Jewish people. It was their home for God. What would happen in the future that would make God destroy his own home? What would happen in the future that would make God no longer be with his people? In order for the temple to be destroyed, judgment would have to come. And the Jewish people would no longer want his presence among them. How could that ever happen? They've come to this temple numerous times. Every year they had to go to the feast. They went every year to the temple. And now, Jesus, you're saying it's going to be completely wiped out. And with it, all Jewish hope, it would seem to them. You see, everything they'd ever experienced about God happened there. It would be like us standing at the National Mall in D.C. and being told that in the future the Capitol, the Washington Monument, the White House, the Lincoln Memorial, the Smithsonian would all be in rubble. For those who worship our nation instead of God, sadly many do, that idea would be absolutely devastating. That's where they are. By the time they get to the Mount of Olives, the, 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 they begin to press in for more information. They've had time to think about it. Just a few, and so they went to him privately. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? The disciples understood. The destruction of the temple would have to be associated with something cataclysmic. It would have to represent the end of the age. Jesus has spoken prophetically. He's foretelling the future. 
We know that this prophecy is fulfilled in 70 AD, but they didn't. When that glorious temple to God was built, it only stood for six years before it was destroyed. Finished in 64 AD, not existent in 70 AD. The devastation of the temple by the Romans in AD 70 was so thorough that the precise location of the sanctuary is still not known. In Jesus' lamenting over the Jewish rejection of him, he foretold of this moment. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is desolate. Temple is nothing. There's no God there anymore. And the disciples are really asking one question with three parts. When? What's the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the age? For them, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world had to be all tied together. What is now known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus provides a concise yet comprehensive overview of the end of times. It's incredible as everything he does. In just 27 verses, he moves from the beginning of the tribulation to the return of Christ. He immediately, prior to this passage, has done three things. Context is important. He has come to Jerusalem. They have claimed him as the Messiah. They, they bowed down. They had palm leaves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they begin rejecting him. First, Jesus calls out the leaders of the church. He's judged the religious leaders. He called them whitewashed tombs. Second, he laments over Jerusalem and the Jews for not receiving him and rejecting the covenant. And third, he has departed physically, symbolically, and spiritually from the temple not to return again during this earthly mission. In essence, he's saying those things are now all done. Now let me tell you what's coming next. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Jesus was concerned that the disciples might misinterpret the signs. You see, they were tying all three of those things together into one event, and it's not going to be one event, and Jesus knows it. So he says, look, don't be deceived. The temple will be completely destroyed. And the disciples, in their mind, had already tied the destruction of the temple to the end of the world, and Jesus knew it was going to happen in 30-something years. They didn't understand already that the temple was already desolate. God had left. It's an appropriate time for this kind of discussion. The, the religious leaders rejected Jesus. They're soon going to deliver him to the Romans for crucifixion. He knew the bitter fate awaiting Jerusalem. He wanted to give hope and confidence to his disciples who would very soon be greatly tested. The disciples probably thought they had only one question. Jesus was telling them it would be destroyed. 
And then it would seem logical that it would happen as it happened before. You see, when Jesus said that the temple will be destroyed, they immediately went back to the last time the temple was destroyed. When God brought the Babylonians through. Solomon's temple, it was completely destroyed in the context of national judgment and exile. Soon, he's going to be bringing the Romans for the same purposes. Jesus continues, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. All the things Jesus mentions in this section are not specific signs of the end times. They're going to happen, but the time is not yet. They're going to increase, but the time is not yet. There's going to be a sign that tells you now. These are simply signs of forewarning. Wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. They have marked human history since the moment Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. They're not new to us. Every generation has seen them. There's always been wars and earthquakes and pestilences. It's been throughout every generation. Jesus says, look, that's going to happen. But that's not the sign. All are the beginning of sorrows. Though none of those are specific events of the immediate end of the world. Collectively, however, they are a sign. When Jesus described these, he literally called them the beginning of labor pains. And just as with labor pains, we should expect when these things begin to increase and happen with frequency. Wars, famines, earthquakes, they would become more frequent and more intense before the return of Jesus without any one of them being the specific sign. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And they'll put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Who's he talking to? Us. Disciples aren't here. Who's going to be delivered up to tribulation and put to death? Who's going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake? The followers of Jesus in the end times. Who are we and where are we? Get ready. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and they'll lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. His disciples, he says, should expect to be persecuted. All of them are going to be martyred for the most part, as far as we know. This may make his followers think the end is near, but it's not a specific sign of his return. Christians have been martyred and are now being martyred with increased frequency like never before. 
the period after Jesus ascends and before he returns, his disciples should expect to see, and when I say disciples, I mean us, his followers, society getting worse and worse and worse and farther and farther and farther from God. Again, that's still not a specific sign of his return. Eight key indicators, false Christ, wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, false prophets, lawlessness, and worldwide preaching of the gospel. Like birth pains, increasing in frequency, bringing a sense of urgency. Jesus promised that before the end, the gospel would go out to the whole world. No matter what happens with false prophets, persecution, and the downgrade of society, the gospel's still going to stand strong. It'll spread despite persecution. It has from the moment it has been revealed. The church is to take seriously their duty, however. God assured that this spread of the gospel will happen, but here's the thing. It's not that we have to accomplish it. It's going to happen. God has already ordained it. We need to participate, but it's not like God is waiting for us to do it. Look at Revelation 14, 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Picture that. A world that's rejected God, and and here comes an angel flying overhead with a loud voice that says, Fear God. Give glory to him, for the hour of judgment has come. Imagine what that does to those who don't know Jesus. Then Jesus says something amazing. And then the end will come. You mean that's not all? All those things are going to happen and the end's still not here? No, it's not all. You see, that was the tribulation. Jesus says, now let me tell you about the great tribulation. That was just like warm up. There'll be a time of tribulation and then a time of great tribulation. How do you know when the tribulation, when the great tribulation starts? What's the sign? How will we know? Jesus says, now let me tell you what the sign is. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Jesus says, when you see this sign, run. Get away, it's coming right now. The abomination of desolation speaks of the desecration of the Jewish temple. The establishment of an idolatrous image in the holy place. Which will result in the judgment of God. It is the abomination that brings desolation. Abomination in the Jewish terms was a specially offensive form of idolatry. It's putting yourself up first in front of Jesus. Standing in the holy place, the holy of holies, in the temple that's been desolate since Jesus left. Someone's going to come into that temple, declare themselves to be God. They are going to force worship. 
And it is going to be the abomination, the ultimate idolatry that destroys everything. Standing in the holy place. Only one place that can be, and that's the temple. And this has not happened already. You'll read in different passages, different interpretations that the abomination has already occurred. It can't. Because the abomination is tied to the return of Jesus and the sign that everyone will see. And since that hasn't happened yet, the abomination hasn't either. However, in order for the abomination of desolation to occur in the holy place, the temple has to be rebuilt. Right now it's a dome of the rock. But in end times, the original temple, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, will be rebuilt. And it will be magnificent. It'll also be empty. For centuries, there was only a small Jewish presence in Judea. Presence in the region was definite and continuous, but very small. Imagine this small group of Jewish people. They read this prophecy, and they would be, be like us. We're, we're going to build a what? The greatest temple in the history of man? Are you kidding me? We're, we're going to do that? They couldn't imagine it until in 1948 when Israel became a nation and people started coming from all over the world. You see, it all ties together. The Jewish people coming home, temple being rebuilt, the abomination of desolation. Many in Thessalonica had thought it had already happened. They were concerned that they'd missed it. Look at what Paul tells them. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That is not a subtle sign. He's referring to the prophecy in Daniel that we talked about. He's going to declare himself as God, place himself in the Holy of Holies, demand worship and put images of himself up all over the world, demanding that people bow down. Daniel continues, and the king will do as he wills, the Antichrist. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Everything he do is doing is under the authority of God. Daniel eleven thirty one: forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. He shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant but the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. Daniel gives us another key point of information. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. That's three and a half years. From the time the abomination of desolation occurs, three and a half years of great tribulation. The abomination 
of desolation has to be some form or image of the Antichrist that people worship and bow down to. It will be in the actual temple in Jerusalem, but it will likely be in synagogues and other places around the world. It'll probably be some form of a hologram. The passage from Jesus tells us of the midpoint of the tribulation. The next passage describes the next three and a half years. The sign that says it's happening is the abomination of desolation that occurs in the temple. It's not subtle. And the response to God's people when that occurs is run. Run. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, not, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. No human can stand the wrath of God. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonder so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus says, see, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Christ's coming will be sudden, startling, universally visible and terrifying to the ungodly. Those who are following Jesus, much like those on Palm Sunday, who know the scriptures, will know that day is coming and when it is. We just gotta last 1,290 days. That's it. It won't be a surprise to those who are believers. They'll be waiting for it. Just like those on Palm Sunday were waiting for the Messiah to show up and present himself to the temple on that Palm Sunday that year because the prophets had said so. Then there's this weird phrase, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's probably a figure of speech, probably means something like when judgment is ripe, it will come. But the, the image of eagles and vultures gathering at carcasses Symbolic of death and decay of the old age as it gives way to the new. The lifeless corpse of the Jewish faith attracts the carrion eagles of Rome and the reborn Roman Empire. This suggests that when the world has become rotten with evil, the sun will come in judgment. Then, well, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. 
And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven. We don't know exactly what that sign's going to be. We don't know if that sign is only in heaven or if it's in the heavens. What we do know is Jesus will be visible, manifested to the entire world at once, to the point that even people who don't know him are going to mourn and freak out because they will know that judgment has come. And then they will see the Son of Man. Everyone all over the world at once will know that he's there. No reason to go look for him. It won't be subtle when he comes back for judgment. Then Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know summer's near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Jesus assured them that when these signs appeared as he foretold, The abomination of desolation, followed by the great tribulation, followed by the signs in heaven, his return to earth would immediately follow. Those aren't subtle signs. The abomination of desolation, three and a half years of the worst things that could ever happen on earth, and then the heavens start to fall. Stars fall, planets fall, the sky tends to fall. Then Jesus comes. When the fig tree buds, summer's near and the fruit's coming. In the same way, when these signs are seen, Jesus says, he'll come in glory with his church and the world will invariably be forced to respond in some way. Pay attention to the lesson of the fig tree. That's really a question for us, isn't it? Are we willing to learn the lesson? Just as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and told his disciples, he's even more so telling us. But you see, a sign has no meaning unless it forces some kind of action. Let me repeat that. A sign means nothing unless it forces some kind of action. Signs should move us to do something. So as we go through this series, I want you to begin processing with God, how do you want me to change based on what I'm learning? What am I going to do differently when I better understand the future? Am I learning all of this so I can impress my friends and argue with them on social media? Or because I'm being called to a battle station and I need to be prepared? How is tomorrow different because of what I'm learning? What are my devotions like? What about my study of scripture? What about my prayers? What about how I choose to use the resources God has given to me? What about the way I choose to submit or not to what God's asking me to do? You see, our world is changing. And so must we. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. Let's pray. God, I thank you that um, you sat down on that mountain and told us the future, told us what was going to happen, because you wanted us to be prepared. You wanted us to not only see the sign, but to respond to the sign. 
God, knowledge can puff up. Please, God, let what we've learned and what we're learning change who we are as believers. Prepare us for the task in front of us. Give us a heart of prayer that desperately cries for those that don't know you. Move us to quit living our lives for ourselves and begin living our lives for the mission we were sent here for. Help us to use our resources. Help us to use our talents and our skills. Help us to make sure that if there's a battle station with our name on it, we're standing strong in faith. God, we're not here just to learn about the Word. We're here because how we respond brings about and in many ways changes us, but also the people around us. So help us to be strong, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.